0: Okay, our next lecture, Dr. Neil Peters, who's trained at the University of Michigan and is a clinical instructor in the Department of Dermatology at Northwestern University. He is primarily a medical dermatologist practicing here in Chicago. Please help me in welcoming Dr. Peters. For the introduction and see the front row areas. If anybody wants to come right into the front row here, please uh, feel free to crowd on down, but, What I'm going to be talking about today, we bring the slides up. Thank you. We're gonna talk about clinical differential diagnosis. Uh, I think it's important as you see your patients to always be aware of the common, but yet always be thinking outside of the box, because what will set you apart from your colleagues who are in primary care or pediatrics is that with your focus on dermatology, you will be uh, the ones picking up subtle nuances to delineate one condition from another. So what I'm gonna try and do here today is describe conditions that mimic urticaria and angioedema. We'll talk about a couple variants of eczema or conditions that look eczematous but are not, and talk about some of the features that will help you separate those out. And then also I'll talk about some other uh, eruptions that you may see in, in their, uh, their associated differential So, let's start with urticaria versus urticarial-like. You know, the urticarial lesions, of course, 10% of the population has urticaria, which makes that an incredibly common presentation. And, of course, the primary lesion is the urticarial wheel. They're evanescent. They should last, actually, usually about two to four hours an individual lesion. But some of these will last for up to 24 hours or so but most are going to be for sure under 36 hours for classic urticaria. And these hives will resolve with no residual lesion. Uh, The skin will go back to normal in appearance. There'll be really no secondary changes like crusting or scale or erosion. Pyritis, of course, is a hallmark feature. And associated with that, some patients will have angioedema. The urticaria-like processes that you might see on the other hand will often feature more sort of infiltrative uh, plaques. Uh, The lesions often do persist, uh, often for multiple days. They may resolve with discoloration and even scarring. Um, And secondary changes are actually quite common in contrast to classic urticaria, and these would be things such as erosion, scale, and the like. Uh, some of these lesions will have absolutely no paritis, which is a hallmark or a, a telltale sign that the differential should be swaying away from classic urticaria. And the urticaria-like processes that we'll talk about uh, typically have no features of angioedema. So what are these so-called urticaria-like processes? Well, there are a multitude of them. Some are common and some are rare. The, the common conditions are contact dermatitis, which sometimes will present with an urticarial nature, uh, arthropod bite reactions, autoimmune bolus disorders such as pemphigoid. Uh, as per the last talk, certainly uh, PUP uh, can also present with urticarial-type lesions in the setting of pregnancy, and then so-called urticarial vasculitis. On the rarer side are things such as Sweets syndrome, Wells syndrome, and mastocytosis, And so we'll go through some case-like examples of several of these conditions. So let me start with the first case. A 24-year-old with no significant past medical history presents for evaluation of persistent paritic lesions on the ankle. The lesions have been present for two weeks and the patient has seen a primary care physician who referred the patient for a possible allergic reaction. On exam, the patient has agmanate or grouped red dermal papules with slight excoriation. And this is how these lesions would look. Basically, you have these tightly grouped lesions, uh, some of which have some secondary change. So again, these are urticaria-like. Now, this would be an example of papular urticaria, the most common cause of which would be an arthropod bite reaction. Now, your patients, as soon as you mention that you are thinking that this is a bite reaction, the, the patient's response typically is I want to know, you know, what bit me and what exactly is it, and all the details of, you know, when it happened and how they did it and how many bites, and that that the discussion will rapidly fall apart at that point if you don't take control of the conversation. Uh, the, the footprint of a bite, unfortunately, is entirely non-specific, so you have to be a little bit cautious. It's also important with papular urticaria to include a differential to the patient rather than discreetly saying that it could only be a bite because obviously there are other causes of papular urticaria. Now, if you proceeded on and did a biopsy of these lesions, the biopsy is rather nonspecific. There'd be a lymphohistiocytic infiltrate with some eosinophils, so you usually get back from your pathologist a so-called dermal hypersensitivity reaction pattern. There are some appearances of bites that can be suggestive of a certain diagnosis. Um, Here, this is on the right lateral thigh, you can see almost a linear array of bites and some people would refer to that as sort of breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And that uh, makes you think of a couple of potential arthropods. Um, Our friend at the top there is the uh, the good old bed bug and then the much smaller uh, arthropod in the lower right is uh, the the flea or uh, T. s. Uh, canis or felis, and both of these can produce bites. Um, you know, bed bugs. Don't let the bed bugs bite. Sounded like a cute little saying. Um, you know, don't worry; those those bed bugs are they're out of the picture. But the reality is is that bed bugs have made a tremendous resurgence. Um, there have been num- numerous articles in numerous major cities uh, discussing this. For example, in December 30th, 2007, there was an article in the New York Daily News about bedbugs. <clears throat> they got some uh, front-page headline status, the bedbug did, making all bedbugs very proud. Uh, here in Chicago, we've had n- a number of articles in both the Chicago Sun-Times and the Tribune citing the fact that bedbugs uh, have made a, a real resurgence. So yes, the bedbug, we're back, baby. Um, so you have to just be aware of this possibility. But I I, I definitely wouldn't open with, you have papular urticaria, I think this is a bed bug. Uh, Again, the impact that that statement has on a patient, uh, when they leave, some of these people just fall apart, and it it really is a very um, consuming diagnosis because there's a lot of um, sort of baggage that goes with how do I get rid of this and how do I manage it. So who is the bed bug? Well, Cymex lectularius is a wingless arthropod, quite small, seven millimeters in size, has sort of a reddish-brown color. And this little guy will live in the cracks and crevices of beds and flooring, floorboards, behind picture frames. It's just a lovely little secretive creature. And then with travel in this wide open uh, globe of ours, uh, they love to maybe nestle into one's luggage and, and come with you just so that they can explore the world much like we do. Uh, it's interesting that bed bugs are pervasive in the setting of like homeless shelters. Uh, one study showed that 31% of uh, homeless shelters in Canada were infested with CYMEX. Uh, but we're also seeing them in lug- luxury residences, so condos and apartment complexes throughout major cities. So it's just something to be aware of. And the resurgence has been attributed to several things, including wide open travel. Um, the purchase of secondhand furniture. So you go into an antique store and you find that chair you really love, beautiful upholstery and you take it home and you get the antique bed bugs that come with it. Um, So there's many ways that this this can uh, be picked up and the bite of the bed bug can produce not only papular urticaria but really even intense reactions. Uh, The bite saliva contains uh, basically a vasodilator called nitric oxide. Uh, it's transported by a protein called nitroforin, and some folks, some people who are bitten by the bed bug actually will develop IgE-mediated reactions and therefore um, can get very intense, large urticaria-like lesions, uh, and even bolus lesions in rare instances. So how do we make the diagnosis specifically? Well, finding the bug is probably the most important thing. And you as the clinician, as you're looking at your patients, the patient who keeps re-presenting with the same pattern of papular urticaria, sometimes in linear arrays with the so-called breakfast, lunch, dinner pattern, mostly on exposed portions of the extremities would be a little bit suggestive. You want to ask the patient, do you live alone? Do you live with someone? Does the other household member have uh, a similar pattern of bites? That again would be suggestive of this possibility. And here in Chicago, I've actually had several patients who have brought in the little Ziploc bag with the little Cymex guy that I showed you. Now, treatment or eradication of bedbugs is not easy. Um, intense cleaning, vacuuming, um, in a professional exterminator service are uh, required. But uh, again, be aware that bedbugs are a real phenomenon. Now, sometimes papular urticaria will be surmounted by a tense bullous lesion, or so-called bullous arthropod bite reaction. This can happen with the flea, uh, so the dog and cat flea can produce this in some patients. Or, for those of you from uh, the southeast down to Florida and throughout uh, Texas, the, the good old fire ant is notorious for bolus arthropod, or so-called solenopsis. And this is the distribution in red. Uh, when <clears throat> solenopsis uh, arrived in the U.S. from Argentina, sort of nestled into Florida and um, small areas, but you can see that over the course of um, the last 70-80 years that the, the reign of solenops- Solenopsis has expanded. And the, the fire, fire ant, again, pervasive across the southeastern U.S., um, it is a venomous ant, um, and in rare instances the bite venom can elicit sometimes very severe allergic reactions. Right, let's move on to another case. A 53-year-old man taking no medications presents with fixed plaques on the bilateral pretibia. The lesions were initially tender, prompting, prompting treatment for cellulitis uh, with dicloxacillin by the patient's primary physician. However, the lesions failed to improve. The lesions are somewhat indurated and paritic and have been present now for over three weeks. The patient uh, has no sy- other systemic symptoms The uh, CBC is unremarkable except for an elevated eosinophil count. The remaining labs were unremarkable. So here's how this patient might look. Um, This is a picture of actually on the wrist of a comparable lesion, sort of an indurated, almost urticarial, but dermal plaque. You don't see a lot of uh, epidermal change. This could be warm to the touch. Again, often mistaken for cellulitis, but unlike typical cellulitis, it's paritic. So here's a situation where you would think of numerous things. Um, You might proceed on with a biopsy, and if you did do the biopsy, what you would see on what your pathologist would describe back to you is you can see in the deep dermis a fairly dense infiltrate, and at higher power there's uh, degenerated collagen fibers surrounded by eosinophils, and so pathology would describe that back to you as the so-called flame figure now flame figures can be seen in numerous different things including blistering diseases like bullous pemphigoid, arthropod bite reactions, and then in this case this is an example of something called Wells syndrome or eosinophilic cellulitis. Now this was first described by Wells back in 1971, a condition mostly seen in adults, men and women both, and clinically As I described in the case, these patients usually have these paritic persistent plaques of variable duration, but usually on the order of multiple weeks. They can be somewhat urticarial in nature. These patients often have sort of a a relapsing or waxing and waning course, and uh, at least half of them will have peripheral eosinophilia. Now, as far as the cause of Wells syndrome, most cases are probably going to be idiopathic. It is thought that arthropod bites or other Factors could potentially trigger wells as a persistent dermal hypersensitivity reaction. And there are several drugs that have been reported to trigger wells, and these include things like bleomycin, aspirin, um, and even tetanus immunization in children has been reported to trigger wells in one series. The histology, again, the flame figure, when you see that back from your pathologist, just think a little bit about wells, keep that in uh, the back of your mind. And treatment, for a a smaller lesion might just be with a topical steroid, antihistamines, but often these patients require uh, systemic corticosteroids, so prednisone may indeed be required. And then also some patients have very uh, relapsing courses or very uh, refractory cases, and so sustained prednisone can be a problem. Uh, You worry a bit about the side effects, and actually dapsone can be used in these patients. And then um, in the setting of, again, these sort of persistent dermal, almost urticarial lesions, uh, another rarer thing I just wanted to uh, show a picture of, again, keeping this in the back of your mind. This is an adult who, over the course of several months, has progressively developed multiple reddish dermal papules. And then with time, they've increased in number, taking on more of a reddish-brown hue. And the patient will report that the skin is pruritic, and when they scratch, the individual lesions will uh, urticate even further, uh, some of which may even blister. And this is the so-called deriae sign of urticaria pigmentosa, which is a form of mastocytosis. Uh, mastocytoses are um, certainly not common, but you, again, need to keep your differentials broad as you see patients with dermal, almost urticarial or papular lesions. This is an example of urticaria pigmentosa in a child. Uh, On the top, that's uh, H&E showing uh, a sparse infiltrate which actually is comprised of mast cells. And then down at the bottom, special stain with tryptase showing um, uh, the actual mast cells. And again, derriere sign just refers to the fact that on rubbing, you get degranulation with release of histamine and other mediators producing uh, a a positive derriere sign. Another case, a 58-year-old male, presents with a 3-month history of persistent, non-tender swelling of the lower lip. The patient has a history of similar episodes with no associated symptoms, and he was sent to allergy recently for possible angioedema, but rightly so, the allergist has identified the fact that this is not angioedema, given the persistence of the lesions, and sends them to you for further evaluation. Other than having a very nice mustache, um, this patient also, not that there's anything wrong with a nice mustache there, uh, but I want you to focus on the lower lip. I mean, clearly very indurated, and the patient reports that this has been progressive and persistent, so knowing that this is atypical for and unlikely to be angioedema, your differential needs to broaden out. And so you might help yourself by looking at another place, and the next place you would want to look is on the tongue. So if you see a furrowed tongue, so-called lingua placata, that would be part of the so-called triad of Melkerson-Rosenthal syndrome. And Melkerson-Rosenthal is a rare condition, also referred to as chelitis granulomatosa. The key is the persistent lip swelling The triad, which is only fully seen, the full triad is only seen in about 20% of patients, would feature a facial palsy, the lingua placata, and the angioedema-like persistent swelling of the lip. Now if this is biopsied, if the lip is biopsied, which would be the way to make the diagnosis in the patient who lacks the full triad, uh, what would be seen are almost sarcoid-like granulomatous uh, lesions so-called non-necrotizing granulomas. And this would lead you then in the uh, correct clinical setting to the diagnosis of so-called Melkerson-Rosenthal syndrome. Uh, How is this treated? Well, it's very difficult to treat. Uh, Intralesional, Kenalog can be tried. Uh, Tetracyclines have been reported to have some efficacy, a variable degree. Um, Prednisone can be tried. Actually, interestingly, patients... um, with sarcoid or ulcerative colitis have been reported to develop lesions of this nature and those patients both the sarcoid patient, the ulcerative colitis patient and the Melkerson-Rosenthal patient therefore uh, may possibly uh, respond to drugs such as uh, Remicade or infliximab so um, for a very refractory case that would be something that also could be considered and that has been discussed in the literature So the next case is a 62-year-old referred due to the abrupt onset of urticarial pyritic lesions on the trunk and flexors. Again, the lesions are persistent here for days, again telling you that we're not dealing with classic urticaria and progressing, but now feature erosions even in areas where the patient has not been scratching. The patient has no uh, known drug allergies and is presently on only actos and hydrochlorothiazide, which he has been taking for several years. So here's how this patient might look. These are sort of indurated dermal plaques with limited secondary change in the gluteal region with some slight scaling. But on the backs of the upper thighs extending onto the gluteal area, you can see some shallow erosions. So your differential for uh, urticaria-like fixed paritic plaques that are progressive in an older patient with erosions but no bolus lesions should still include the primary autoimmune bolus disorders like bolus pemphigoid. Now, if you treated this patient and say, you know, I'm not quite sure what this is. I'm going to give you a topical steroid. Let's see what happens. Typically, what will eventuate is there will be progression. So the so-called urticarial phase where you may have annular or dermal plaques could then progress into the more classic tense bulla. And once you see this, of course, then you'd be thinking of your primary autoimmune, immunobolus disease, a disorder such as pemphigoid. And so the tense blisters certainly would would tip you in that direction, but remember that some of these patients will uh, present with sort of a pre-blistering or pre-bolus-bolus pemphigoid. Um, In the setting of this with no blisters, if you're not sure, you can always do a biopsy. So here, if one of the lesions on the thighs were biopsied, what uh, would be seen in the lower portion the pathology is a subepidermal separation with uh, an infiltrate of eosinophils, which would certainly be suggestive of bolus pemphigoid. Classically, pemphigoid is a a blistering disease of the elderly. Um, So 60 and up would be sort of the classic range, although younger patients can definitely get pemphigoid. Um, These patients, again, can have this sort of pre-bolus presentation. But once they develop the tense, Ebola uninflamed or even non-inflamed skin, that's a hallmark feature of the condition. And ultimately, your diagnosis, the gold standard for diagnosis would be a direct immunofluorescence test where you submit that patient uh, that patient's uh, biopsy speci- uh, specimen in uh, a special medium, not formalin, but something like Michelle's medium so that the DIF can be uh, processed. And the treatment is wide-ranging. I've listed some of the treatments there um, <clears throat> for uh, the sake of just review, but uh, I don't want to focus too much on the individual treatment of pemphigoid. And remember that the the hallmark here is the direct immunofluorescence, which is shown here. And the DIF will show linear staining in the basement membrane zone uh, with binding of either C3 or uh, IgG. Now what is uh, being bound here? Just to walk through this cartoon, on the top you have a, a basal keratinocyte uh, then below that is the basement membrane zone, which is broken down into a lamina lucida and a lamina densa. Now, the lamina densa is made up of uh, type 4 collagen. Uh, protruding through the hemidesmosome from that basal keratinocyte is the bullous pemphigoid antigen 2 um, (BP antigen 2) and BP antigen 1 is intracellular, and those would be the targets for uh, reactivity in pemphigoid. Now. I'm not going to spend much time on this case given that the last talk was about uh, or covered some of the dermatoses in pre- uh, pregnancy, but remember that the uh, pregnant woman who presents with paritis, uh, parigogravidarum is in your differential, <clears throat> but if there are indurated urticarial lesions often starting on the abdomen and then disseminated, think of uh, PUP or the paritic urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy. And these are usually in primigravidas, but can happen with sub. Um, Uh, in subsequent pregnancies in some instances. And typically these resolve uh, several weeks or even days after delivery. As far as pregnancy outcomes compared to uh, women without pup, uh, maternal age was roughly the same in this series. Um, Most of the pup cases onset late in the the pregnancy and parity again, 28.6% of uh, pup cases were primigravidas, although you can see that multiparous women also can uh, still develop PUP. So the next case is 67 year old male with a history of persist- a persistent papula squamous eruption. The lesions have no seasonal variants and itch minimally. The patient is seen as primary doctor and another dermatologist, as well as an allergist pri- prior to seeing you. So here you know this is somebody who is already uh, a bit frustrated. He was diagnosed with, quote unquote, dermatitis. However, he reports no response to multiple topical steroids in prednisone. He uh, presents due to continued spreading of this chronic eruption, uh, still concerned that he has uh, what he believes to be a chronic um, allergic reaction. So the key here is focusing on the clinical. If you really look at your patients, it's very easy to be, I'm busy and, and at clinic, I'm a little backed up, and everything just starts looking like eczema. And so you just say, okay, that's just, that is eczema, and I'm gonna just give you this medication. But what you wanna do also is just look at the clinical. I mean, take, take that little moment to really focus on the primary lesion. And here what you can see is this particular lesion really does not look like a hallmark eczematous lesion at all. It's sort of reddish-brown. It's a little bit atrophic with minimal scale, a very thin patch, and it's located on the gluteal region, which is not a classic eczematous site. Here you can see at higher power or closer, just um, the surface of this uh, particular papulosquamous lesion is very atrophic. Um, These patients sometimes will even have more annular lesions, so it'd be easy to mistake this for something like tinea corporis or the like. So given the history of uh, seeing so many folks, it would be uh, wise in uh, most instances to even consider doing a skin biopsy and what your skin biopsy would show is something akin to this, where on the top, uh, there's a sparse infiltrate of uh, atypical appearing lymphocytes. And in the bottom, <clears throat> those are forming a, a micro abscess or a so-called Potriase microabscess in the epidermis. And that would help lead you to a diagnosis of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So remember that CTCL often presents as a recalcitrant dermatitis, as was the case um, for this individual patient. And you can really distill down in some instances, perhaps many instances, making this diagnosis on the basis of really three features. The first is the morphology of the lesions. Sometimes they will have uh, that atrophic, um, sort of reddish-brown coloration, a little bit different than your classic eczematous lesion. So the morphology may be unique. Uh, Annular lesions, hypopigmented lesions can also be seen The distribution is important. Uh, CTCL, not in all instances, there are certainly many exceptions, but in some some instances will have a predilection for so-called double-covered skin sites. So um, under a t-shirt and a shirt, so that would be in the axillary area, uh, lateral portions of the chest, and then on the buttocks and hips. And then of course the histology, if you proceed with the biopsy, that's of course the definitive uh, way to make that diagnosis. Uh, Treatment, there are many treatments for CTCL. Again, that goes sort of beyond the scope of what I'm trying to accomplish here today, and I would encourage you to obviously review that. Um, But needless to say, light therapy, topical steroids, and systemic agents can be utilized. Uh, In your differential for the annular lesion, uh, don't forget about tinea. Perhaps the biggest mistake to make, in my opinion, is that the the time that you're certain it can't be fungal is the time that actually will be fungal. So hopefully you guys are proficient at KOHs. And the the hard part, again, in a busy clinic is we all get caught up. It's easy to say, I don't have time to do a KOH. I'm just going to go with uh, this or that. Um, So these are three different cases. Um, In A, that's a classic annular lesion of tinea corporis. And B, this is uh, an individual's back. And down at the bottom, you can just slightly pick up the, the little annular edge to that. And then in C, that's an example of a patient who was treated, who had tinea, who was treated with a topical steroid, and it's taken on a little bit of a bizarre morphology, the so-called tinea incognito. And so just a quick KOH scraping can make all the difference in the world. And if you detect your hyphae, then you're, you're off and running. A 62-year-old male presents to you for management of a chronic paritic eczematous process. He has no atopic history and describes uh, worsening symptoms over the last six months. He's seen as primary physician and a dermatologist prior to seeing you. And therapies such as satyrazine, uh, temovator clobetazole, and various emollients have produced minimal relief. Prednisone courses have helped, but the eruption has persisted. And, uh, again, the patient will often come in suspicious that there's something allergic going on. So this is more of a not papular urticaria, but rather a papular dermatitis. So the patient with the so-called itchy red bump, um, these patients can be very challenging, and the differential can be broad. That can be just an idiopathic eczematous process. If it's torso-predominant, you can think of things such as Grover's disease. Um, But you also want to just look around and take a a moment. And if you're fortunate enough to to find the classic web space lesion, of course it makes identifying uh, something such as scabies uh, much easier. So the scabies might, unlike the bed bug, uh, never kind of went away. It's been there the whole time and continues to be there. And I find myself still, as I progress into my career even further, Uh, amazed by the fact that I have patients who will present for things without web space lesions or with somewhat nonspecific eruptions that turn out to be scabies, so you'll always want to keep that in the back of your mind. And what you don't want to do, in my opinion, is submit a biopsy and have the pathologist telling you that there is a mite in the stratum corneum. Uh, You should be able to pick that up clinically and just do your KOH scraping and make that diagnosis uh, But always keep that in the back of your mind. And I know you all see scabies, but you have to respect the fact that that common little uh, mite has so many varied presentations. Uh, Papular dermatitis, um, web-space lesions, when present, certainly help. Um, The lesions often do follow the so-called circle of Hebra, which is sort of a circular uh, pattern of predominant lesions um, extending from the axilla hands and into the genital region. Uh, Some of these patients will actually develop uh, bolus lesions, so in rare instances, scabies can produce an eruption that mimics bolus pemphigoid. Uh, There can be deep nodular lesions, and they'll often be found on genital skin, and those are often teeming with mites. And then in rare instances, uh, lesions that are pseudo-lymphomatous. I had a patient who had a diagnosis of lymphomatoid papulosis who presented to me for a second opinion regarding how to manage that, <clears> on <throat> further uh, review, I mean the pathology definitely had these somewhat um, uh, wedge-shaped infiltrates but my pathologist asked me on reviewing and receiving the slides if anything else such as scabies could be going on so I did a KOH scraping and lo and behold uh, this, uh, uh, this case turned out just to be scabies. So just keep your differential broad. The scabies critter, uh, a lovely little mite. Um, uh, This is the life cycle shown here, which I think you guys are all familiar with. And as far as the treatment, well, it depends. I mean, uh, if if the patient, say, is someone in a nursing home, um, has sort of neglected lesions, uh, they can have very thick, crusted, uh, so-called Norwegian scabies. Um, These types of patterns can be a little bit more difficult to treat with just topical permethrin. And again, the web space lesion being a hallmark. So the the patient needs to be treated, of course, with our two applications. Contactants who have symptoms should also be treated. Um, And then any uh, contactant, known contactant, without symptoms should at least be treated once. And in refractory cases, or say that nursing home patient, where you're worried about uh, the medication being prescribed or uh, applied properly, Uh, One consideration would be oral ivermectin, which can be given at a dose of 200 micrograms uh, per kilogram. And that that actually has uh, very good efficacy and is well tolerated. Um, The next case is a 55-year-old who presents to you with a new onset eruption um, on the upper eyelids. The patient reports intermittent eyelid swelling and intense uh, episodes of itching. And the patient is adamant that she is using no new skin care products. Nothing has changed, she says. Now, we've all seen this patient. We all have these patients who come in routinely. And eyelid dermatitis can be an incredibly um, frustrating condition. So I think what you have to do with these patients is be very directive and careful about how you phrase things. Um, so eyelid dermat- dermatitis, about 90% of cases will present in women. Um, and the potential causes are varied. In one series published in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, uh, actually 75% of eyelid dermatitides in that series, uh, <clears throat> which represented 151 out of 203 cases, uh, were uh, ultimately documented to be uh, a true allergic contact dermatitis. Irritant dermatitis can also produce this. Atopic dermatitis, seborrheic dermatitis, even psoriasis can present in that fashion. And then, given the clinical scenario, you can think of other things such as autoimmune conditions like dermatomyositis in the proper setting. So, what do we do with these patients? Um, <clears throat> you know that you're convinced you've got a 75% or greater, perhaps, chance that that patient truly is allergic to something that they're coming in contact with. Again, the patient may be adamant that, oh, nothing has changed, how can that be? But of course, we all know that that history is not very helpful. Uh, if, those, if you guys perform true testing in your office, remember that the true test is a somewhat limited uh, allergen panel. And in uh, the series published in the JAD, uh, 66 out of 167 cases that were ultimately confirmed to be true contact dermatitis, the true test actually missed that allergen. So comprehensive patch testing is really probably the better way to go. So if you have someone in your area, uh, perhaps if you're fortunate enough to even have uh, someone in your own uh, practice, uh, I think it's just incredibly helpful. And the patch test results are widely varied. There are just so many different things that can do this. Uh, for example, cosmetic products, uh, sodium lauryl sulfate and cocamide and shampoo. Cocamide can be present even in Dove soap. Uh, metals are a common cause, nickel and uh, gold sodium thiosulfate. I always find it a, a, an intense and, and rather um, sad irony that 90% of women might be the ones who get um, eyelid dermatitis. And then uh, a subset of those women may actually be allergic to gold. It just seems like an unfair world to be living in. But <clears throat> again, you won't pick that up per se on, on uh, true testing. Nail products also like toluene sulfonamide and the uh, methyl methacrylates from artificial nails also need to be considered. Um, Contact dermatitis can present in varied fashions. Uh, Fragrance allergies can sometimes feature photo uh, aggravation. So here's an example of a balsam of Peru case. There are um, things that perhaps you do a biopsy, you send your patient home with a little bacitrastin, They call you because the wound is infected. Um, You just want to make sure, maybe you do take a look at that because before you prescribe that antibiotic over the phone, this patient may have something akin to this and you can see the rectangular papula vesicles of a, a contact reaction to the topical antibiotic. This is an example of nickel dermatitis. Again, patient presents with a facial eruption, but just taking a moment to look at the configuration or the pattern can lead you down the path of actually doing more than just providing a temporizing relief to your patient, but rather making the diagnosis that they are nickel allergic. And you can see that at the bottom of the the glasses on the cheek and at the contact point for the the side of her glasses, that the nickel contact points are where the reaction is occurring. Uh, Umbilical reactions often happen due to belt, belt buckles and the rivet on jeans, so also be looking for that. Um, We're all familiar with poison ivy or roost dermatitis, um, the linear uh, lesions being a hallmark. So, again, keep your differentials broad and contact dermatitis in the setting of eyelid dermatitis, uh, particularly if it's you treat and it comes back. You treat and it comes back. I think comprehensive patch testing can be incredibly helpful for those patients. Um, So winding down, a couple more uh, cases, uh, if you guys can hang in there. A 46-year-old woman presents to you for evaluation of hair loss. That's always one of my favorites. Uh, Usually the patient uh, brings uh, a file folder of information that she's, or he, has uh, compiled for me to review. But um, the patient describes a burning discomfort in the scalp uh, localized to areas of thinning uh, over the vertex. Uh, She's seen her internist and reports no active health problems. Her recent labs, including a CBC and TSH, were within normal limits. She has been diagnosed in the past with seborrheic dermatitis and treated with Sinilar solution with minimal to no relief. So when you start looking at this patient, on the vertex you can see that there are areas that are a little bit almost shiny and atrophic with loss of follicular orifices. This would denote that this is actually a scarring process. You may also see or note that there are tufted follicles where apparent um, hair shafts, multiple hair shafts are coming out of one follicular opening. And then at the base of several of these tufted follicles there's a densely adherent scale which would be suggestive of uh, a scarring um, or so-called tufted folliculitis or scarring alopecia. And then um, this would be a more uh, advanced case that is now burnt out and this would be the end result of uh, of this process have allowed to run its course looking more like something uh, like uh, pseudo-pallad where the so-called footprints in the snow with just atrophic white uh, bland areas of scarred alopecia. So alopecia, you can break that down into two categories as you're seeing your patients, the non-scarring and scarring. Now you are all familiar with the non-scarring and I, I I would believe the scarring as well, but just remember that lichen planopilaris, discoid lupus, folliculitis to calvans and dissecting cellulitis of the scalp are probably the mainstay scarring processes that you'll see. Pseudopilad is debatable. Some authors view that as a primary process, but many authors view that as sort of the burnout endpoint of lichen planopilaris. Um, if the patient were to have, say, Wickham stria or oral involvement at another site, that certainly would be helpful into uh, making the diagnosis. And oftentimes, it will require a scalp biopsy. Um, the etiology of LPP is unknown. Um, <clears throat> again, we talked about the clinical features: the, the color of scale, the tufted follicles, and about fifty percent of patients who have uh, scalp LPP will actually have manifestations of lichen planus elsewhere, which can help you make the diagnosis. And there are three types of LPP. The classic type is what I showed here. And then some patients present with a pattern, sort of a band-like pattern on the frontal scalp, referred to as frontal fibrosing alopecia. And then Graham-Little syndrome uh, is a variant of LPP as well. How do we treat or how will you treat your patients with this condition? Well, you can try potent topical steroids. Um, that may or may not work. Um, intralesional steroids for localized disease can be helpful. Um, topical calcineurin inhibitors can, can be tried also, although maybe somewhat cumbersome to apply. In the systemic agents, unfortunately, the overall evidence in the um, literature uh, doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence. Um, But things that have been listed uh, as helpful would include prednisone, Um, hydroxychloroquine, 83% of patients improved in a very small series within 12 months, and in my hands, I have found Plaquenil to be the most helpful. Uh, Other things that have been reported to help include low molecular weight heparin, but again, more in case report uh, models, Uh, mycophenolate, tetracyclines, and even acetretin and isotretinoin have been uh, mentioned. And lastly, a 44-year-old presents for evaluation of persistent facial lesions. The lesions are increasing in number and asymptomatic. The patient does report that a brother has similar lesions and the past medical history is significant for two prior spontaneous pneumothoraces. So how might this patient look? Well, here you have these uh, skin-colored papular lesions um, on the central face uh, predominant And when you see this, the differential uh, would be a little bit broad as far as how these lesions, so uh, these skin-colored papules, things to think about would be trichoepitheliomas, adenoma sebaceum, which can be seen in tuberous sclerosis, so-called fibrofolliculomas, which is what these particular lesions are, and something like seringomas. So in the setting of Spontaneous pneumothorax with fibrofolliculomas, that would be a rare entity called Bert Hogg Dubé syndrome. Uh, it is an autosomal dominant condition. <clears throat> it features uh, various uh, types of facial papules, the fibrofolliculoma being the most common. And a pneumothorax and other pulmonary changes, such as bolus emphysema, can be seen in these patients. And some of these patients may also develop renal tumors. So this is a condition where the dermatologic recognition of the process can lead to a systemic diagnosis that can have genetic family implications. And I'll conclude with that and just want to say thank you very much for your attention. I hope you all enjoy Chicago and I'll be happy to take a couple of questions. For the mastocytosis, what would be your initial workup and follow-up of the patient? Yes, uh, for mastocytosis, I think it does somewhat depend on um, the age of the patient and the type of mastocytosis. But in the setting of what I showed, the urticaria pigmentosa in an adult, I would be a little more uh, worried about potential systemic mastocytosis because adult-onset urticaria pigmentosa can progress more readily into systemic disease rather than urticaria pigmentosa in a child. So I would first take a very detailed review of systems and find out what's going on. Uh, I would, you know, are you having syncopal episodes, facial flushing? Um, Are you having episodes of diarrhea, hives? Um, Just getting a sense of how severe the condition might be I would get a, a LFTs, CBC, and then if I'm suspicious of systemic disease, I would get a serum tryptase level, and that's, that's where I would start. How would you differentiate Well's syndrome from a fixed drug, drug eruption? It's a good question. So um, I think the first thing would be the morphology of the lesion might very well be somewhat similar However, the fixed drug eruption often will have more of a violaceous color, almost more erythema multiforme-like in some instances. And then the key is is that the clinical might, might overlap as a fixed dermal plaque. So I think you are correct. That might be a little bit harder to differentiate. So then you might proceed on and do a biopsy, and I think that's what's gonna help you to split those out. Um, You know, again, wells can be episodic with fixed lesions lasting for several weeks, as could a fixed drug eruption. Uh, Both could be drug-induced, so I think your biopsy is ultimately going to be the thing that probably uh, swings the diagnosis, and if you get back that flame figure, that's not going to be seen in a fixed drug eruption the fixed drug eruption, remember, would have more of an erythema multiforme-like sort of interface dermatitis, and I think that might be how you'd have to uh, separate those two out in some instances. It's a good question. All right, well, thank you all very much and enjoy the rest of the day.